started. It's amazing to hear the, uh, the din of the rain on the roof. We, we don't get that very often in Northern California, so it's a blessing. I'm going to open us in a word of prayer, and we'll, we'll get started. Father, what a blessing to hear your provision, your mercy on us. Um, you know what we need, and you give it in your time, and when you do, so graphically, we are in awe, and we're grateful for it. We know that um, you are a kind, benevolent God, and you give us what we need, and we're grateful. Thank you for that. Thank you for this time that we can spend some time looking back at what you have done, and I hope that we glean from it your glory and how you have preserved and provided for and protected your church throughout the ages. And I pray that this would be a time for us to reflect and to be settled on what we believe and how we trust the living God of the universe. And I pray that that would be the case today. Thank you for this time. Thank you for those that come. Be with those that are on their way. Protect them, we pray, and uh, help us to have a wonderful day of worship together today. In your name, amen. Okay, um, I, Craig handed out the outline. It's about five pages long. We're going to blast through this as fast as we can. And so there's not going to be a whole lot of time to talk or fill the gaps. We're just going to go. So put on your thinking caps and uh, get ready. The first part we're going to review in his introduction. We're going to go back and be reminded where Wayne went and where we went uh, the week before that, just as a reminder. And then we're going to get into the fourth century and move on from there. So in your outline, point number one, Pentecost through the end of the apostolic age. Um, this is a time period between the birth of the church and the death of the last apostle. That's the apostolic age. It lasted about 70 years-ish. Um, so during that time, in your outline, the Great Commission was fulfilled. The apostles went and they spread the gospel, just like Jesus said. And they went throughout the uh, known world at the time. Uh, missions in the Apostolic Age, though all of the apostles were involved in this mission, the Bible pretty much particularly focuses on Paul and his journeys and what he went through for the spread of the gospel. God said that he was going to show Paul how much he would suffer for the sake of the gospel. And it's outlined in the book of Acts and then in his letters he recounts the things that he went through. So. Um, Focus of Acts is on Paul. His conversion was about 35 A.D., 32 to 35. His missionary journeys occurred between about 47 A.D. and 57 A.D. So there was three journeys documented in the book of Acts. Um, there could have been a fourth, maybe between the two imprisonments, the Roman imprisonments that he went through. He may have got to Spain. We don't know, but we know he wanted to. So the local churches are established in your outline. A, Ephesus, Colossae, Corinth, Thyatira, etc. And then the Apostle Paul, or John, writes the revelation of Christ, 90 to 95 AD. So that ends the apostolic era. The church has grown, has been moved out supernaturally in cases um, for reasons that we're going to look at. 
and the apostolic age comes to an end with the death of John, which he died of natural causes, probably in the area of Ephesus. Um, number two, suffering saints and heresies during the apostolic age and beyond. So we're looking at 333 AD to about 313. Persecution is coming from the outside, and false teaching is coming from the inside. So the church is under attack immediately. And Paul, specifically, because we know from his accounts in, in the book of Acts and in his letters, addressed these heresies from within. But from without, the, the attack came from the Jews, initially. The, the church was persecuted by the leaders. Why? Well, the, the church was growing rapidly. It became a threat to them. And they were afraid for their power and influence. So they persecuted the church, took it on, wanted to wipe it out. Um, so the Jewish persecution in the apostolic age, about 30 AD to 60 AD. And we, we know what happened after 60 AD, but we're going to look at what happened during that time from the book of Acts. That's where we get it. Um, in the book of Acts accounts, Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested. Acts 5, the apostles are arrested and jailed because of the jealousy of the high priest and the Sadducees. They put them in jail and imprisoned them. We know that. You've read it. Um, Acts 7, Stephen's martyred, first martyr of the church. Acts 8, Paul persecutes, or Saul at the time, persecutes the church, and the church is scattered then from then on throughout Samaria and Judea and Samaria out. The church starts moving out because of the persecution, so heavy on them. In fact, the Bible says on that day, the day that Stephen was killed, martyred, a great persecution arose, and Saul was in the midst of it. He was breathing threats to the church. He thought he was doing God a service to bring in Christians, have them tried and imprisoned and sometimes killed. And then in Acts 12, James, the apostle James, is killed by Herod, you know, by the sword. So there's the persecution from the, from the, the Jewish side. Um, the church moves out from there because they, of the pressure. They, they leave Jerusalem. A lot of those people that were there during Pentecost didn't really live in Jerusalem. They were from other places in the world, right? And so when persecution came, they settled in, but when persecution came, they moved out. And that, you see how God uses persecution to build his church. And he moves them out. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter, in your outline B, addressed their epistles to the scattered believers. That's how we know that they were moved out. James 1.1, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, 44 to 47 AD, he wrote that, 44 to 47. To the churches abroad, that's who he addressed it, his, his letter to. 1 Peter 1.1, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these apostles and the pastor of the church, James, the brother of Jesus, are addressing their letters to the persecuted church outside of Jerusalem. They're, they're moved out. And uh, then we know on your outline from history um, that Israel fell. AD 70 happened. And that's when Israel was basically fully destroyed by the Roman general Titus. And so God stops the persecution from the Jews. He scatters the rest of the Jews. The diaspora happens, the dispersion of Israel 
happens. That's when they all left, those that weren't slaughtered. And uh, we know that they came back in 1948, but that's when it happened. So God ends the persecution of Christians, Israel, as uh, or Judaism as a religion is pretty much stopped. The temple is destroyed. Animal sacrifices, which now is an abomination to God, is stopped. Because Jesus is the final sacrifice. That was it. Veil torn. Animal sacrifice is done. The, Israel, the Jews continued it. And God stopped it graphically at that point. AD 70, that happened. So, church government at this time. Um, we're heading through church history. We're going to see how the church government started growing. At the time of the apostles and Paul himself, who was an apostle, um, the church government was elders and deacons. That's it. They were, they were serving shoulder to shoulder with everybody else. There was no hierarchy of authority other than they were given the authority to shepherd and to take care of the church. There was no hierarchy of authority above the laity, above the common people. They were in it and, and serving together. That's what we model. That's what we look at and try to do, a biblical view of church government. That's what we do. Um, and we're going to see how that changed dramatically throughout church history. Um, so Jewish persecution ends and Roman persecution begins. So around AD 60... Um, the Roman government began to persecute Jews. Uh, Jews, the church. Jews were accepted. Judaism was accepted. Um, but the Christian church wasn't. So because of Jewish persecution, the church is scattered throughout the known world. Rome is now taking notice and becomes the persecutor of the church. Christianity has moved out into the Roman Empire now Rome is addressing what they believe, and they turn to persecution. Why? The question is, why did Rome persecute the church? And here are some answers. There are several reasons. Number one, Rome accused the Christians of treason. The Christians spoke of Christ being their ruler and king, which he is, um, which the Romans considered treasonous. You, you have a king, and it's Caesar. Number two, Rome considered the emperor a god and demanded worship and sacrifice to him. The Christians refused and would only worship Christ. Rome considered this disloyal to the state. And the Christians were actually loyal to Caesar. They just wouldn't worship him. And that was an affront. Number three, they accused the Christians of cannibalism. And this was due to their lack of understanding of the communion, the body and blood of Christ. They, can, they were accused of cannibalism. And number four, Christians were made scapegoats for the calamities that happened, like floods, earthquakes, pestilence. Um, they believed that the gods of the Romans were displeased that the Christians were not worshiping them, so they brought calamities, earthquakes, whatever it is, they were, it was blamed on the Christians, the church. So that's, why some of the, that's some of the reasons that persecution happened. I gave you a list in your outline of the Roman emperors that were persecutors, it goes right down the line, boom, 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 some of the famous martyrs under some of those uh, emperors you can look at. Um, G on your outline, the result of persecution. You go, well, what's the result? What happened? Um, 
there is a positive outcome for persecution. And we've already talked about it. God used the persecution of the Jews to spread the church out of Jerusalem. They would have stayed. You know, they would have all just been a church there. And uh, God intervenes. He goes, no, you won't. You're going to fulfill this commission whether you like it or not. And so he pushes them out. And Rome takes on the mantle of the persecutor. And God uses that in positive ways. First one is A on your outline, the purity of the church. It could cost your life to follow Christ in the first three centuries, four centuries, up to the fourth century. It could cost your life. So people didn't just flippantly join the church. It was not for political or economic gain to be a Christian. So you didn't do it. That's the purity, kept the purity of the church. Those who are willing to die for the faith were the ones that stayed, the ones that weren't left. B on your outline, growth of the church. The more the church was persecuted, the more it grew. Which is interesting. You'd think it would be the opposite, but it actually grew exponentially under the persecution of the, of the emperors. And the people of Rome persecuted the Christians. Uh, it's estimated by 300 AD, the fourth century, that between 5 and 12% of the known empire world were Christians. That equated to about 5 million Christians by the fourth century, 300 AD. So, amazing how God does this. The canonization of the New Testament occurred, and the canonization means the measure or the rule. Canon means measure or rule that, that was used to determine which books of the Bible were inspired and therefore measured up to be included in the Bible. And there's a criteria for that, and one of the criteria being that an apostle or a close associate of the apostle had to be the author of the book. And then you had to have continuity, unity, and they had to determine inspiration. And so that happened under persecution and heresy. Heresy entered the church too, and we're gonna talk about that in a minute. Um, so there are differing views on when the Bible, the canon of scripture was closed. There's differing views as to when that happened. Um, but some say by the end of the first century and a half, it was done. They had all the books and they were ready to go. People, the churches were using them. The leaders of the church were using them. The fathers of the faith were using them. Others say the canon wasn't closed until the middle of the fourth century. Um, so this is for us to go, which one is it? So we become historians. And, you know, doing this kind of uh, an overview of church history in four weeks is really just to whet your appetite for what took place so that you see and learn church history, know what you, what you came from, so that you aren't doomed to repeat the errors that happened. That's, that's the purpose of it. And we're not going to get into the minutia of what happened. There's a lot that happened, and there's people that we need to talk about, and there's councils that we need to dig into that we're not going to be able to. This is a flyover, trust me. Um, so we're going to continue on. Um, negative in your outline. Number two, negative aspects of uh, the persecution of Rome. Of course, there's going to be negatives. Um, the controversy over those who deserted the faith. What do you do with people that, that gave up their, their um, conversion, basically? They said, I'm not a Christian, and gave over scriptures to Rome, handing them over. What do you do with them? 
And there was controversy over that. Do they, are they out for good, or can they be readmitted to the church after the persecution? Because people come back and go, hey, I didn't mean it. Um, what do you do with that? So they dealt with that. That's one of the negatives. Um, if so, if you, if you bring them back, do they need to be rebaptized? They, they, these kind of questions came up because of it. Um, the other one, B in your outline, is fanaticism and false doctrine arose out of persecution. Um, the very matter of martyrdom became warped. Um, people thought that there was some sin atoning benefit to dying for your faith. So they would actually seek out martyrdom, which is obviously not true. There's no sin atoning effect for doing anything for God. It's what he did for you that has the sin atoning effect. So you can see that people, and it would happen today if that was happening, people would go, I'm, I'm going to die for Christ and he's going to accept me. And that's what was happening. So another thing, I put the term martyr down for you, the Greek word, if you can pronounce it. And uh, it's martis and it means witness. So it's on your outline. Uh, H on your outline, heresy plagues the church. Now you have persecution from without, Roman Empire, immediately when the church was established, heresy began to come in. And uh, the Greek word is heresis, right there, a, a taking or choosing for oneself. You can see how that would apply, but for our purposes, it means a doctrine or opinion at variance with established standards. So you see why there had to be standards and where the, the defense of the faith became important because of the heretical teaching that started happening, literally from the beginning. Um, here, I'm going to give you some of them that were taking place in the early church, in the apostolic era, during Paul's ministry. These heresies started entering the church, and Paul specifically, but the apostles, had to address them immediately. And we know that because Paul wrote them in the letters. He addressed them in his letters. And so, let's take a look. First one's pagan mysticism. This was an early form of Gnosticism. It was not Gnosticism. It wasn't termed that, but it was an early form of what Gnosticism in the second and third century became. And it, in Colossae, you see, um, Paul definitely um, addressed it. Contains element of what later became known as Gnosticism. Spirit is good. Matter is evil. Jesus was merely an emanation from God, not God. This is the, the heresy that entered. He did not have a physical body because matter is evil. God couldn't be evil. So Jesus obviously couldn't have a body made up of flesh because that would be evil. You see how the human mind works. And they're trying to figure this stuff out and they come to conclusions that are in contradiction to what God says. And then they start purporting it. And you have to address it. And you have to have an authority to address it. And that's why the canon of Scripture is so important. Uh, Paul refutes this. Oh, a mystical higher knowledge um, is necessary for salvation. Mystical higher knowledge, remember that, is necessary for salvation. Paul refuted it in Colossians 1, 13 through 20. You can go and look. You can see it. Asceticism is the next one. Colossae, again, was a recipient of this false teaching. Um, extreme self-denial is one of its tenets, including uh, denying yourself of certain foods and sexual relations. Um, you would separate from society. It was kind of like an early form of monasticism. Um, uh, Paul addresses it. He says it's not worth anything. What good is it to flog your body? Don't do it. 
And so he addresses it in Colossians 2.18. The other one is legalism. We know that Paul addressed legalism very strongly. Um, the Judaizers, the ones that came from Jerusalem or were Jews when they were converted, began to teach that you had to keep the ceremonies in order to be saved, circumcised. You had to observe the, the festivals in order to be saved. And that's called legalism or the Judaizers. Paul strongly refuted it in Colossians um, 2.16. And then in Galatians, you know that was one of the big um, points that Paul contended with. Then we get to number four, Gnosticism, second and third century. The Greek word is gnosis, knowledge, and it's, that's the key. Um, there are other things. I'm going to give you a list of things that it, the tenets of Gnosticism, and it's just for you to go, okay, I'm familiar with Gnosticism now. I know what it means. I know what they believed, and, uh, but not delve into it very deeply. Uh, the material world is bad, spirit is good. The mysticism, that's where it comes from. Um, the material world is under control of evil, ignorance, or nothingness. A divine spark is somehow trapped in some, but not all, humans. A um, and it, some of them have it, and some don't. Um, and all of, it, uh, of all that exists in this material world, the only thing that's capable of redemption is those that have that spark. You see how it starts separating people out? Um, very dangerous. Salvation is through a secret knowledge, gnosis. That's where it comes from. By which individuals come to know themselves, their origin, and their destiny. They have this mystical secret knowledge that they attain to, and there was only a few of them. And uh, separated out, people were left out of the equation. Uh, here's another tenet. Since a good God could not have created an evil world, it must have been, been created by an inferior, ignorant, or evil God. It wasn't God himself. He couldn't have created evil. That's how the mind works. If you, if you try to rationalize God and sin, you, you're going to blow up. You can't come to a conclusion, so you start coming to conclusions on your own, and you start purporting. Usually, the explanation given is the problem. One scholar put it this way. Usually, the explanation given is that the true good God created or emanated, sent forth beings called archons, who either emanated other archons or conjugated to produce them until a mishap of Sophia. Listen to this. A mishap of Sophia, which is the feminine personification of wisdom. Sophia. I don't know if you've heard that. But something happened in that, that transaction that led to the creation of evil. The archon who created the world then pretends to be God. That's Gnosticism. That's what they come up with. And it's deadly. Um, let's move on to number five. Docetism. Wayne mentioned Docetism. Um, it's closely related to Gnosticism. It just kind of came off of Gnosticism. That's what happens when heresy enters the church, and we, we're experiencing leaves, it just repackages itself. And we, we're experiencing that in our day, stuff that happened then, and it's still in the church. So remember that. It's in, it continues. And the church has to be aware. You have to know what the attacks are. You have to understand what the Bible says so you can refute attacks. And that's what God is setting up 
by attacking the church with heresy. Next one is Montanism. Oh, Doceticism and Harris believed Jesus never had a physical body. That was the issue. Jesus was never physical. He never died on the cross a physical death because he couldn't. So, obviously damaging to the gospel right off the top. Montanism, next one. It's based on the teachings and writing of Montanus, formerly a priest of the Oriental cult Sibyl. He was converted to Christianity and dubbed himself a prophet who had bouts of ecstatic utterances. I don't know if you can think of anything right now, but I can. He's a prophet. And then his prophecies, his prophecies, when many of his prophecies were false. He said he's a prophet. And then his prophecies are false. That's a problem. So the church deals with it. His prophetic writings, he started writing, uh, spurred the church to consider which writings were actually canonical, which ones were inspired. So God uses a false prophet that has ecstatic utterances and starts writing to spur the church to go, get the Bible together. Get it set so that we have a basis of authority to defend against this kind of stuff. That's how it worked. So, um, some have equated Montanism to Pentecostalism and charismatic movement. So, there it is. Um, I, on your uh, outline, persecution and heresies give rise to the fathers of the faith. Um, we got to get going. Fathers of the faith. Fathers of the faith. Four categories. Wayne mentioned one, the apostolic fathers. He mentioned some of the names. The apostolic fathers were men that were actually taught by the apostles. They were alive and were taught, and God raised them up as he does. God raises men up of renown and uncommon valor and intellect to defend the church. And that's what's happening. So you have these men. We, um, here's a list of them on your outline. Include, uh, but not limited to, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, Wayne mentioned. Actually, in Ignatius coined the term Catholic, universal church. That's where it came from. Catholic means universal, so it has a good connotation. It just turned into a bad connotation. We become Roman Cap uh, Catholicism. We'll talk about that as we move on. But he's the one who coined that term, Ignatius. Polycarp of Smyrna. I gave you the dates for them. The next were the apologists in the line of, of early church fathers of the faith, the apologists. And I put on there, they are skilled defenders of the faith. Apostles' doctrine. They defended it and were uncommon in their ability to do so. God raises them up. Do you see that happening in our day? I do. He raises up men who defend and protect the church because that's how he does it. And these men were them. They were well-educated. Um, they defended the faith to Rome and those who would bring false accusation or charges leveled. Um, they include Justin Martyr, Tertullian. Tertullian could be a polemicist, which we're going to talk about next. Um, I can't talk about these guys in depth. We're at, <laughs> we're, we've got to get moving. These guys, we need to talk about them. You need to know them and know what they went through and what they endured for the faith because it inspires us to go, what would I endure for the faith? What do I know about the faith in order to endure suffering if I have to? That's why we study these guys and get to know them. Polemicists are next. These guys are skilled at arguing. That's what polemicists do. They argue against false doctrine and heresy. God raised them up. They were skilled at that. 
One scholar put it this way. They raised up by God to fight the heresies that were beginning to make inroads into the church. In refuting error, they used much of the New Testament and were a key to forming the New Testament canon. So they understood the letters that were being sent, the gospels that were making their rounds through the church, and they were skilled at, the, at arguing for it against false doctrine. So false doctrine comes, God raises up men, he protects the church, and it leads to other things that we're going to talk about. Um, the third one, should that be the fourth one? Yeah, fourth ones are theologians. Oh, sorry, let me... Uh, to tell you who the polemicists were. It's in your outline. Irenaeus of Smyrna, Cyprian of Carthage, Origen, you probably heard of him, and Athanasius. You should know Athanasius um, of Alexandria. Those were all considered polemicists. The theologians, uh, the fourth one, I think it, I may have put third on your outline. Sorry, it's fourth. Sorry about As long as you can read it. Yeah. I used the new printer. <laughs> and uh, as long as you can read it, yeah, thanks. Um, these guys, the theologians, were skilled at the study in the nature of the nature of God. Study, theology, the study of God. These were the theologians. They studied the nature and attributes of God, and they used scientific methods to do it, to pr prove or develop theological meaning. So they could be scientific theologians, they could be called. Um, they represented two areas in the world. So by this time, the, the Roman emperor, Empire had been split into two sections, east and west. And would that be west for you guys? East and west. Um, so there were men that represented the east and men that represented the west. The eastern fathers were John Chrysostom. Um, he was considered an outstanding preacher. In fact, he became known as Golden Mouth. He was so eloquent in his preaching. God raises up men that are gifted and skilled. Theodore, number two, became known as the prince of ancient exegetes, um, famous for his grammatico-historical interpretation of the Bible. He could interpret the Bible and was known for it. Um, he knew the language, so he could interpret accurately. Number three, Eusebius. He's the first real Christian historian in the church. Um, he is famous for his work called the Ecclesiastical History. Again, a lot more to say about these guys, but we just don't have time, so we're going to keep moving. Uh, B, Latin or Western Fathers. You probably know these names. Ambrose, who's born in Germany, Bishop of Milan, and, drew, and he introduced hymns into the church, hymnology. Um, he was instrumental, though, in the conversion of Augustine. That's Ambrose. Um, Jerome, you've probably heard of Jerome. He studied and spoke Hebrew, very important. Um, he lived a very monastic lifestyle, lived in a cave, yeah, basically, for most of his life. Um, but he was asked to translate the Bible, Hebrew, into Latin. And that became known as the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. You know that the Latin Vulgate is the Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. It becomes an issue as we'll see. Uh, but Jerome is the one that translated it. Number three is Augustine, or Augustine. Um, we could spend months on this guy right here. Uh, he became known as the greatest theologian since the Apostle Paul. Um, he was known for his writings, the Confessions and the City of God. Um, here's what's good or um, unique about him for us. Um, he was a strong proponent of the doctrines that formed the Reformation. 
um, the sovereignty of God in election, predestination and salvation, uh, and the total depravity of man. He understood these and, and taught them. Um, he confronted heresies, Manichaeanism, Donatism, Pelagianism, all of those we should look at. We should know them and understand what they are, and we'll get, we'll get to know Pelagianism a little more. Um, but anyway, so we come to, that's all introduction and review, we come to what we are going to talk about today. And that by the 300s, the Roman Empire had effectively split into two sections, east and west. In 306 AD, uh, the Roman army proclaimed Constantine in Britain. They were in Britain, the Roman army in Britain. So let me back up. 306 in the west. One was Constantine. Two generals had designs uh, to be emperor in the west. One was Constantine, and the other one was Maxentius. They were both in the west. Both were over large Roman armies in different areas in the empire. Um, Constantine was in Britain, and um, Maxentius was more in Italy, and, but he was over in North Africa and Asia. So, these guys want to be emperor. This is key. This is the key moment in history for us, the church. These two, these two generals coming together and, and having a, a dispute. So, Constantine's emperor over Spain and Gaul, which is modern-day France. Uh, Maxentius was over North Italy and North Africa. Italy and North Africa, sorry. And uh, Constantine, knowing a conflict was coming, decided to take the upper hand, and he's going he's gonna to jump Maxentius before he's, he's prepared. So he takes his army of 40,000, begins about 10 miles north west. Um, they end up meeting about 10 miles north west of Rome in a place called Sax Rubra. But what's key about this location is that the Tiber River ran between them. And there was a bridge there called the Milvian Bridge. And the only way that they could meet was to go over the Milvian Bridge. Now, one thing to note is that Maxentius's army was three times the size of Constantine's, and he had the Praetorian Guard on his side. The Praetorian Guard were the elites. They were the seals of the Roman army. And so Con uh, Constantine knew that he was in for it. So he looked for a supernatural help, some kind of supernatural help. Because he knew 40,000 against 120,000 plus the Praetorian Guard. So uh, Con Con Constantine is a worshiper of Mithra, which is a, it's a pagan Persian god, the sun god, but was the god of the soldier. So he was worshiping the god of the soldier of the time. He's a, a pagan. And on the evening before the battle, he's looking for supernatural help, and he sees the sign of the Christian cross over the setting sun. And the words over the cross, in hoc signo vinces, which means in this sign, not for Constantine, but for us. This is key for us, not for Constantine, but for us. He sees this sign, he takes it as a sign from the Christian God, which he is not a worshiper of at the time. And this became the turning point in the history of the church for peace in the church and legal practice of Christianity, and you can see. 
Um, number one on your outline, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Remember I told you there was a bridge over the Tiber River? This is the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. This is key in history. On October 28, 312 AD, Constantine's army crosses the Milvian Bridge and, and routes Maxentius's army, including the Praetorian Guard. Constantine believed that the God of the Christians helped him, so he made a profession of being a Christian at that moment. And the Christian... He was the first Christian emperor, or first Roman emperor to do so. Key in the church history. Um, it's not actually known if he was converted. It doesn't really matter. What, we, what matters is what he two in 313 Christianity. Um, and that takes us to point number two in 313 AD, the Edict of Milan. It's a big one. March 313, Constantine with Licinius, who is the ruler of the Eastern Empire. Remember the empire's divided into two. Constantine is now the emperor of the west. Licinius, Licinius is on the east. They get together and come make this edict, the Edict of Milan, which basically legalizes Christianity. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't do away with pagan religion. It just legalizes the practice of other religions, specifically Christianity, because now Constantine is identifying as a Christian. And uh, so it didn't do away with pagan worship. It just uh, gave freedom for the Christians. It restored confiscated places of worship, ended the persecution, made good on all the losses that the Christian church had um, endured for the first 300 years of its existence. Um, interestingly, Licinius did not honor this edict and then began persecuting Christians in the East and that offended Constantine, so Constantine went to war with him. Probably wanted to go to find a reason to go to war. Anyway, so he goes to war with Licinius and defeats him. And now guess what? He's the emperor of the whole Roman Empire now, which is good for the Christian church because now empire-wide, worldwide, Christianity is now legal. So there's positives and negatives to the Edict of Milan, just like positives and negatives for persecution and heresy. Uh, number one, persecution ended. Um, you have the list in your outline. Christianity positively affected the moral tone of society, put an end to the gladiatorial games, um, improved the treatment of slaves, and evangelism flourished throughout the empire. Right? Negatives. This is where we're going for the, uh, for the Reformation. I'm going to blast through this because we're running out of time. The negatives of the Edict of Milan. Remember, Christianity is legal. Uh, Constantine's the emperor. Can you imagine what Constantine wanted when he confronted the leaders of, or had association with the leaders of the church, which were bishops at this time? Bishops, presbyters, elders used to be the same word. Um, we're going to see how that started becoming a hierarchy of authority in the church, which becomes a problem and leads to the Reformation, really. Um, but Constantine did a lot for the church. We know that. But he also wanted say in the affairs of the church. And we don't even know if he's saved. But now he wants influence because of what he has done. Um, he set the stage for centuries of strife and actually collusion between the church and the state um, in, in government. Number two, worldly influence invades the church. This is where we're going. Um, it became acceptable to be, a, to be a Christian after 313. So... The Christian name became a ticket for power and influence, especially under Constantine. 
you could get in, you could receive the perks, the benefits of being in the hierarchy of authority of the Christian church. Um, Non-converted men were assuming positions of leadership in the church. Uh, church government mirrored the corruption of the secular government. It's beginning. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about Christendom, Christianity, and the church invisible. I'm just going to talk about the church invisible. Christendom is, I mean, let me say it real quick. Christendom is Rome. Christendom is America. When the state religion is associated with a certain religion, it becomes that. So for us, for our purposes, Rome is Christendom, which is the state religion of the Roman, the soon-to-be-defunct Roman Empire, is Christianity, but Christendom is, I was born in Rome, therefore I'm a Christian. That's it. It has nothing to do with the tenets or practices of Christianity. That's Christendom. America, as you can see, is Christendom because our Judeo-Christian heritage, we were termed a Christian nation. That's Christendom. It has nothing to do with Christianity of the invisible universal church. So I want to drop down to what's Christianity. Christianity is a mixture of the two. You have true believers going to church and non-believers who are associating with Christianity coming to church. So they're practicing Christianity, all of them, but not all of them are saved. That's the state we're in today, Christianity. The church, let's talk about that. The church is the true church of God, Christ. Those that are regenerate, born again, purchased, redeemed, justified, that's the church. And it's invisible because most of them, most of the church have already died or they have not been born. That's why it's invisible. And it's invisible because those that are true believers can't be, told, can't be distinguished from non-believers. Like if you were to look at Nick sitting there with a bunch of unbelievers, you'd go, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. He'd just be taller and better looking than all the rest of them. That's all. But you couldn't tell that that's why the church is invisible. There will be a day when the church is not invisible. And we know that from 1 John. And I'm going to say it real quick, and then we're going to probably end. The church invisible. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Jesus didn't look like anything different than men. They didn't know him because he just looked like a man. We know him. We know him. That's what it says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So people don't know us. We're invisible as far as our redeemed status. Can't see that we're redeemed. There is going to be a time, though, when we can. But we, will, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Glorified Christ. You will know the difference. It's just not now. The church universal, every nation, tribe, and tongue that is redeemed is the church universal invisible. That's the true church. The question is, which one are we? And so that's, that's my thing, my rant on Christianity, Christendom, and the church. Um, other things that were negatives of the Edict of Milan, favoritism of the bishops. Constantine kept the leaders, bishops happy by giving them perks. 
He loved pageantry, fine clothes. That's where vestments came from. That's where you see the Catholic Church and some of the other denominational churches that are high, high church. They have all of these like robes and hats and weird stuff. That came from Constantine. It never left. Um, favoritism of the clergy. I'm just going to keep going because we got to get done. Uh, I'm not going to comment on that. You can tell. Favoritism of the clergy. They didn't have to serve in the military. That's a big deal. So if I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to get into ministry. I'm going to get rich, and I'm going to have power and influence. You see the problem? It's coming. So heretical attack. Peace happens, but heresy continues. I'm just going to go down the outline really quick. I'm over time now. Uh, monar monarchianism attacked the Trinity of God. The divinity of Christ was attacked by the Arians. Arius was an elder in Alexandria. Who was in Alexandria? Athanasius was. He opposed Arius because he um, um, posited that Jesus was not divine. He was a created, the first created being. And everything was created from Jesus, but he was created. That's a problem. And uh, Athanasius does it. Church's response, church organization. You've got to have a hierarchy of authority to fight these things. That's what they thought. So they started having this hierarchy of authority. That's not the biblical model. The biblical model is elders and deacons serving with the people, hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, in them, not above them. Uh, so church organizations... Uh, foundational flaw of the Roman Catholicism is Matthew 16, 18. Know this. On this rock I will build my church. This is where it began. The Catholic Church got this wrong. They misinterpreted this passage of Scripture. That's where the papism started. The Pope. First bishop. Um, the Catholic Church coined the term, was coined by uh, Ignatius. Um, Matthew 16, 18. Let's read it real quick. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter, Petros, rock, Petra. Two different words. It's not Peter that he's saying, I'm going to build my church on. It is the confession of Peter that he is going to build his church on, which is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Catholicism got that wrong. They also believed that Peter was the first bishop in Rome. I personally don't believe Peter ever even went to Rome, let alone died there, and let alone became the first bishop there. And we could talk about that and why I believe that. can't now, but um, it would be fun to chop it up. Uh, church organization, um, unbiblical. You don't see it in the Bible. Therefore, we go, should we do that? We want to do what's in the Bible, right? And the corruption, as I mentioned, um, I'm going to stop there. We'll talk about the Apostles' uh, Creed. I gave you a, a copy in the handout of the Apostles' Creed. This came out of the heresies that started plaguing the church. You had to have a statement of what I, we believe. I believe. That's what creed means. I believe. So we have to codify what we believe. And that's the first one. The Apostles' Creed. This is what we believe. Based on, it wasn't the apostles that did it. It was the fathers of the church that did it, made it, based on the teaching of the apostles, which is the Bible. 
So it has, I think it has uh, scriptural references that you can look at where they got it. One interesting point you'll see. But anyway, we're going to stop there and we'll take up next week with the councils. And then we'll get into the Reformation. <laughs> Sorry I went over. <laughs> I knew I was. I knew I would. Um, let's pray. Father, what a glorious uh, history. It is filled with people that are, that are wicked and fallible and men that are weak and men that are strong and men that you empowered to protect your church, that you said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you have done that. You are faithful to do. You are trustworthy. We are the recipients of your edict. You said, and it has been done. We pray that we will be faithful to remember it and to glory in it and glorify you because of it. We love you. Help us to love you more. Bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.